Hello, welcome everybody. We've got a very exciting spotlight conversation for the DOF audience today. We're talking about global opportunities in mobile gaming, and we have two fantastic experts here to talk to me today. I am, of course, Ethan Levy, currently in stealth mode with my uh, Web3 venture over at uh, Connect Ventures. I've got two fantastic guests, Nancy Huang from Eastside Games and Ludovic Tevelin from Google here to talk about international expansion and global opportunities uh, for mobile game developers. So uh, Nancy, Ludo, welcome to the podcast. Could you each uh, please take a minute and just uh, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Hi, I'm Nancy. I'm the head of user acquisition and growth strategy at Eastside Games here. Uh, We publish primarily idle narrative games like The Office, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race Superstar, Trailer Park Boys, and Bud Farm Idol. And you guys, you did a uh, Always Sunny game too, right? I'm Yes, we did do an Always Sunny yeah, game. Yeah, I'm a big well. Always Sunny fan and I, I played that one a bit. It's, uh, it's, they're all, it, you know, they all do a really good job of wrapping an authentic narrative on top of uh, some familiar, uh, addictive, idle gameplay. And uh, Ludo, how, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and current role? Sure. Um, I'm based out of New York, originally from Belgium. Uh, been at Google for just under eight years now. Um, and the last four years of those have really been focused on international growth. Um, so I work within a team at Google that, that supports our clients in developing, uh, in this case, uh, their games outside of their domestic markets. And basically, we solve for all the complexities that come with trying to find opportunities and be successful um, outside of, of domestic markets. Got it. Well, let's let's kick it off with kind of a, a fundamental question. Uh, most Western publishers have the majority of their revenue coming from tier one English speaking countries. Uh, is there a risk to being so hyper focused on these markets? I know that you know on the live games that I've run. Uh, certainly, we focus a lot on U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, because these are rich countries where uh, people speak the same language as us. And then, you know, Germany, France, uh, Spain, other uh, uh, the Nordics, other countries that have kind of rich populations uh, with uh, a high prevalence of English speakers, basically playing playing where it's easy. Ludo, you've you've had a macro view, level view of the market for years. Can you talk about the risks with the approach of really focusing on the English speakers of the world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that approach you mentioned makes a ton of sense, right? And we see that time and time again with with a lot of our advertisers. Um, I think what I've seen happen most often, uh, the most obvious risk is that uh, after a certain amount of time, markets get saturated, right? Especially when we talk about the US, the UK, in some of the more popular uh, gaming categories, um, CPI start to creep up. It becomes difficult to maintain kind of the same level of acquisition costs we had maybe in, in the early success of the game. Um, as we start to hit some sort of maturity levels and, and the game might not be evolving or developing as, as fast as the audience wants it to, um, those costs creep up. So that's kind of the first obvious uh, real limitation. And by diversifying into, into other markets, you know, you talked about English proficiency. Uh, there's a lot of markets outside of kind of that classic tier one, where we can start getting more of a market share and, and kind of diversify risks in that way. Um, I'd say another thing is, is you know, the classic having all of your eggs in, in one basket. Um, we've had a pretty volatile past couple of quarters. Um, 
economic conditions in a global context can all affect what happens on the market, what happens in terms of downloads, costs. So really having a diversified set of, of markets that you're addressing um, helps you kind of overcome some of those short and long-term volatilities that can happen. Um, and even, you know, in, from a competitive standpoint, we see sort of larger advertisers coming in, kind of maybe shake up the auction. Um, you can be sort of immune for that if you have more of a, a diversified approach. Um, and then lastly, in terms of kind of uh, developing your game, I think it's important to have a, a diverse set of audience group to to get kind of different and various signals that allow you to help develop the future of the game, uh, optimize campaigns based on different regions, uh, and really get a healthy set of kind of various signals versus continue to optimize towards those tier one users, um, uh, which which can be different to you know other users in, in in other markets where we could also be getting more more value out of. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely familiar with that, uh, you know, the payback windows, just extending and extending the longer uh, your your game is live. Um, I was part of a game that actually just had, I think it's sixth, sixth year anniversary. And just, uh, uh, it's been interesting, you know, I'm no longer part of network and, and, and haven't been on the legendary team for a long time. But it's it's definitely a challenge and something that that you see and, um how how payback windows shift over time as your your targeting gets uh, uh, as as you burn through all the best users and go more and more and more so you can find more users in different countries. Uh, Nancy, kind of boots on on the ground. What's your experience here? Yeah, so just to echo what Ludo has mostly covered already with English speaking markets, they are typically the most valuable, especially with games that are very focused on English narrative. Um, but typically they are also the most expensive. So it's a fine balance between these high costs and also higher ROAS and making sure that balances out. But some of the risks of just focusing on those markets is that you miss out on a lot of opportunity outside of English or tier one markets. So by going into tier three and more rest of world geos, um, you're, you're able to look further beyond just regular IEP monetization and thinking about a more holistic monetization strategy where users in those geos, they may not convert as well on purchases, but they're also likely to watch more ads as well. So taking a look outside of the, your tier one offers an opportunity to reach new markets and audiences where you might not expect there to be pockets of quality. And these your titles might also seem newer to these users as well, where you haven't advertised before. Like you said, as you saturate, your costs tend to increase. And by reaching this new audience that hasn't seen your ad or your game before, you can also access lower costs. Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, Garena is a case study in what can happen, the amount of success that's possible if you focus primarily on those markets that other people are ignoring. You know, they've they've uh, carved out a hundred million dollar or more a year niche in the very uh, crowded, very fought over battle royale genre by focusing on markets, having a very local strategy, uh, running local events and, and, and uh, going, supporting low end devices, doing the sort of things that, you know, when you're me and my friends and everybody has a high-end iPhone and lives in the U.S. and, and has a, a stable internet connection, you end up making a different sort of game. 
Nancy, Eastside Games Portfolio is known for games with IPs from various fan favorite shows like Always Sunny, which I love, The Office, which is one of the most popular evergreen shows at, at this point, RuPaul's Drag Race, etc. What kind of special efforts do you need to enter new markets when you're bringing these IPs to them? Like, does how do you figure out if RuPaul plays in Indonesia or not? You know, what what are you, I have an assumption and I could be incorrect that that these IPs play mostly to the same English-speaking Western markets that we're in. So how do you figure out uh, which games you think will resonate to different audiences around the world? Yeah, that's a great question. We have a really wonderful portfolio of fun IPs that we work with, and understanding them is really key to combining both qualitative and quantitative data in order to understand these audiences and how these IPs are going to resonate in these different markets. So when we're looking at new markets, we utilize both market research tools and lean with lean on our partners like Google and our ad network partners to understand how they're going to perform in these different geos and different networks as well. And we use that in order to tailor our strategy and prioritize different geos that we want to venture into. So when working with Google, we were able to use a prioritization model that considered different KPIs and weighted them differently based on what is more valuable. So in those KPIs, we looked at potential audience size based on search volume and how popular the searches in those geos have been for, uh, say, RuPaul, for example, and how those searches have trended year over year. So is that an IP that's growing in popularity or decreasing? So combining all of those, we look at the IP power in that geo, how that geo monetizes uh, their English proficiency as well. So whether or not we need to localize the game in order to succeed in that geo is very important. What the costs are and the CPIs that we expect by going into that geo, and then create an overall ranking of which geos would like to go into first, second, third, and our level investment in each one. Uh, with RuPaul in particular as well, there's also some cultural factors that we take into consideration. So given the nature of the game, I'm not sure. It's, it's overall level of fabulousness. With... <laughs> yes, the fabulousness. Uh, we have to make sure that the geos that we go into accept this level of fabulousness mm-hmm. too. So we look all at geos the should, LGBTQ+. But not all geos did. As all, all geos, geos will be improved exactly. with a heavy dose of RuPaul. But... Yeah, we think so too. So looking into that LGBTQ plus friendliness factor as well, we're able to help prioritize our efforts and know which geos we definitely shouldn't be going into and which ones will accept this IP with open arms. And then uh, we create our strategy accordingly of how we want to venture into these markets. Got it. And, um, you know, I, I know from, from talking before the podcast that you guys worked in collaboration with Google on, on the launch of, of RuPaul. How did, how did you two work in partnership to figure out how to best expand and bring the RuPaul fabulousness to players all around the world? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Nancy nailed it. Uh, the, the basis really is we bring frameworks, right? We, we try within our team to help clients understand or advertisers uh, understand um, you know, where the opportunity lies and how best to approach that. Um, and so we basically have a, a couple of frameworks that anyone could really use um, that we leverage to, to identify opportunities. 
and, and all the stuff that Nancy references is kind of a great starting point, right? We have all this data. Um, some of it is, is accessible, you know, through Google, but most of this data can also be pulled from, you know, common third-party platforms, looking at, um, you know, install volumes, monthly active users, how much revenue has been generated on average in a certain market. Um, uh, and then once you have that data, kind of line it up with what makes the most sense for you for your game, right? Um, you know, look at the KPIs of the markets where you are successful, Think about why you've been successful in those markets and then look for those same signals in markets where maybe you're not as present. Um, and that starts to help you identify kind of gaps in your own strategy or key markets where maybe you're not focusing and you should be. Um, then we can loop in a ton more data, you know, the prioritization model that Nancy was talking about. I've done this where it's extended multiple tabs uh, and a lot of rows on Excel. Um, but the more data we loop in, the more accurate we can start to get and we can play around with variables to say, to Nancy's point, do we localize here, yes or no? Are we okay to move forward in the English first strategy? Um, those kinds of things. And so for Rupal, we really focused on, obviously she mentioned some, some of the branded search volume, um, but also the signals that we thought, okay, this, this kind of um, country will accept this game, uh, typically performs well. And then based off of that, um, we define a, a go-to-market strategy. Yeah, you were just searching uh, uh, by country Google trends on Glitterbomb. Glitter bomb search. That's a leading indicator <laughs> yeah. of where people want to play. Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, what what types of games, uh, Luda? What what types of games do you think are really primed for global expansion? Are there any you know that don't translate? Yeah, I think the um, you know that that localization and culturalization piece is is probably the biggest blocker, right? Um, by nature, you know. Games are global. Um, it's much easier than web or any other platform to just suddenly go, go, go global. We see a lot of advertisers just launching rest of world campaigns without any really thinking much about it and actually kind of working in the beginning. So the localization piece is, is the biggest blocker. Um, so if you have, you know, obviously simple games that have uh, not much text in the game itself, um, don't really require a ton of culturalization, um, those will obviously scale much easier. Um, if we're talking about, you know, heavy storylines, really in-depth, um, a lot of text. That's going to put up a lot, a lot more of barriers. A lot of tiny text on small buttons is yeah. really a problem for localizing yeah. your game. Exactly. If we think about internationalization standards, I think Germany especially produces some issues there because the, the words tend to be a, a much longer. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that also links back to the, the, the things of what to look out for and what not to do um, is to really consider beyond just translation localizing right and culturalizing making sure that the text makes sense in a certain context as well yeah and for the game designers product managers and 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 ux people out there i mean i'm sure nancy you've you've dealt with this but uh actually considering these things at the design phase thinking about your layout and your button size and how much uh text um uh, something can uh can handle, does it wrap, can it, uh, how is it going to handle Asian languages? Like these, these are challenges that make interface design a lot more uh, difficult and time consuming and aren't necessarily the most fun parts to think about, but can help make your game available to a much broader uh, audience. Right. And I think just to add one piece there, I think that's why uh, the overall, you know, message of our team too, is to include this, this thought of going international, going global at, at you know the starting point of developing a game or thinking about a marketing or business strategy a lot of the times it's like step two or three right now we that we've done domestic let's think about international 
But at that point, you know, you've already skipped all these steps uh, that should have been considered initially. So ingraining that international piece from the get-go allows you to kind of overcome some of the challenges that, that may become in the future that you referenced. And and Nancy, from the developer perspective, what have you learned when, when bringing all this diverse portfolio of games to countries around the world about kind of what games work uh, and what don't, especially considering the IP focus that, that Eastside Games has? Yeah, so we work on both IP focus games, but we also have some original IP games in our portfolio as well. And uh, we found that games with broad appeal can also work in international markets. But the most important thing is that we need them to have strong in-game metrics. So retention, monetization, ArpDAO, all of those fun things that the product team thinks about in order to market it. So even with English games, you can test going into international markets without localizing your game. And ideally, you'd be thinking about this from the get-go and setting up your project so that you can add localization and translations into your game easily and without all of those buttons and UI issues that Ludo was referencing. For IP products, it does provide a really great fan base and brand recognition from the get-go. So as we market and run UA in these international markets, there's already an existing fan base there who are excited and ready to download the game regardless of whether the experience is in English or if the ad is in English. Ideally, we'd localize it for those geos and make sure that the cultural factors are taken into account, but we can still understand the audience and how those geos monetize and what type of costs to expect once we do go local in those markets. Got it. And any any spe- special uh, challenges being Canadian? I know that there is a border between us and there is some... Uh, local Canadian flavor. I'm I'm actually mostly curious when I'm getting a Degrassi game, idle game from Eastside Games. That's the slice of Canada I want to see exported to the entire world. We work on a very Canadian IP game. One of our main games is Trailer Park mm-hmm. Boys, which I hope everyone knows is a very classic, well-loved Canadian IP, but it's also very widely streamed on Netflix in the US and other geos as well. Looking at where your show is being streamed and where it's well-loved is also a really big part of this. We work closely with Google on our existing live ops games as well to understand the IPs behind them, the markets that they're also popular in. So not just for game launches, but for games that we've been running UA and been supporting for a long time, we're also still trying to continue to expand and grow and make sure that other geos outside of our English speaking ones are also getting a taste of the Trailer Park Boys greasy money. And so with these IPs, we know that they're very heavily narrative and humor might not always translate as well. And so when thinking about localization, considering the humor piece and how you're going to localize these jokes to make sure that they make sense in both English and when RuPaul says, Shantae, you stay, it sounds great in every single language. So even for games with heavily narrative focus, strong humor, and an IP attached to them that you might traditionally think is only works in English, the best approach is to test is what we always say in our team and to see how these games work without localization, with localization and um, 
checking each step of the funnel to see how users are responding to ads in English, in the localized language, um, the app store, the same, and the game experience as well. Luda, what, what are some of the common mistakes com- you see companies make when they're expanding their game into new markets? Um, yeah, I think Nancy touched upon the, the first one, right, which is the, the localization, culturalization piece, and we talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, I think localizing or culturalizing a game is, is really a process, right? It's not just you just kind of snap it and it's done. It's understanding you know, local audiences, how they interact with the game, how they interact with the potential IP, and adjusting for that. Um, so it's more of a process. Um, so I think uh, a lot of the times the biggest um, pitfall that I see, we actually have teams that go in and review advertisers' copy in, in their ads, in their games, um, and we find inconsistencies, we find grammar errors, we find issues with parts of the text not being translated. And a lot of, a lot of the time they weren't aware of it, right? Because this was done with an agency multiple years ago or they did it kind of in-house through someone that doesn't work there anymore. So I find a lot of the times these things aren't checked up on regularly enough. Um, and it's definitely something that, that should be looked at more closely. Um, and then also taken to further to really local culturalize the content to think about, you know, local market preferences and adapting for that as well. Um, so that's one big piece, I think. Um, the second in terms of specifically running campaigns, it's, it's adapting bids and budgets to the markets that you're um, you're targeting, right? Um, there, there's oftentimes kind of a copy-paste attitude mentality to what's working in the U.S. or whatever your domestic market is. And- right, because everybody loves what we do. That's... <laughs> isn't that how it works is the is the yeah, is the I one know. u.s citizen or, or yeah. <laughs> i think somehow advertisers think they you know whatever's worked for them in the u.s will do that right. everywhere else it's going to work just the same um yeah. and then you know the same markets come up where you know high volume markets like brazil and india drive a lot of volume but don't drive value um you know markets in in europe are some of them are high income um drive a lot of revenue but the volume is too low um, so really kind of working um, to figure out how much you should be bidding initially, especially when you're starting out a new game that isn't sort of uh, hasn't got the learning or doesn't know what type of user is in that market, um, allowing room for kind of the algorithms to optimize for that um, is an important one as well. Um, and then lastly, I touched on kind of the campaign account ad group structure, um, really think through what that could look like based on, you know, the markets that you're targeting. Um, again, the rest of the world, throw all the countries into one campaign approach can work, does work as a great first step. Uh, but as you kind of develop your game, think about localizing, culturalizing it. Um, it's really smart to kind of at best potentially break out um, one campaign per geo and language combination. So you can really optimize towards local users in, in a native language in a, in a local country. But also you have more control of the creatives, right? You can start to really... Uh, add that culturalization aspect by uh, personalizing creators further, um, thinking about language, people, culture, all those types of um, localization pillars and include them in your creative, your storyline, your copy. Uh, and that's ultimately going to help you in the long term and, and drive more conversions. Got it. And, and Nancy, what about you from the boots on the ground perspective of, of bringing a lot of games to countries around the world? What are some of the pain points you've experienced or lessons you've learned along the way that have made you better marketers and, uh, cult, you know, made your games better for your global uh, fan base? 
I think one of the first things is not looking at the full user funnel and what that experience looks like. So from a development and marketing point of view, it's important to look at when a user sees an ad, what that ad looks like, whether that's localized, and then what's, what happens after they actually click that ad. So if they see it in their language, this app store should show the same language that as the ad that they're seeing, uh, the screenshots as well, making sure every single piece of that app store has actually been translated and QAing it to make sure that's the case. And then once the user clicks and actually installs the game, does it automatically detect and correct it, set it to the correct language, making sure that the user actually has a smooth experience from start to finish is really important to your overall UA and growth strategy. So making sure that you test that and um, not just applying US copy to your ads and actually localizing the ad experience as well. So making sure that the cultural considerations of the geos that you're marketing to are taken into account so that your humor translates, your copy translates, and the art style and how you lay out an ad is gonna be very different in the US compared to Japan, for example. So having that taken into account when you're creating your ads from step one is very important. Uh, on Google specifically and running user acquisition on Google, uh, Ludo is kind of the pro here, but following the best practices and working with your reps on Google or whatever ad network you're working with, making sure that you follow those best practices for localization and not just applying your tier one US strategy. Because if users and the US perform a certain way, you can't expect that user to have the same monetization, retention, and in-game performance as they do in your US market. And really understanding how that user is going to monetize is going to inform what type of costs you're willing to accept and what kind of bids you should be setting in those geos. So if you're targeting a certain bid in the US for a cost per purchase campaign, um, in India, you're probably going to have a much lower bid there because those users are going to monetize through ads. So how you measure the success of your campaigns is really important too. And taking the full monetization spectrum into account when understanding these tier three and rest world users is going to be really key for your campaigns to succeed. You're not going to want to measure the campaigns with the same brush as you do with your tier one campaigns and then working with all of your partners on different networks to follow their best practices and not applying the same setup as tier one to tier three. Yeah. The making sure to look at and localize each step of your funnel, um, that one really resonates with me because I play a lot of South Korean, Japanese, you know, Asian games. I get a lot of anime games advertised to me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Insta. And um, the types of just pure wastes of money I see are really interesting when like I'll see a piece of art and copy that's interesting and then I'll tap it and it'll take me to a page that's all in Korean or like a web address for pre-registration with nothing there. Like I, it, I, I don't know if it's because I'm receptive to uh, international games that that I see this all the time, but I, I see it a lot where I'm like, oh, this company just threw money out the window, literally paying me for to click to go to a blank website or a website I can't read that's not translated. 
Um, I see that a lot. Totally. And I think people often test their app a lot because there's a full QA team typically when you're creating your game and um, making changes to it. But on the advertising side, it's also just as important to QA that and process. Do you, have, so, do you have QA testers dedicated just to the marketing funnel? Yeah, I, I do. Like um, usually it's our own team QAing it. and trying to get people in those specific geos to actually look at a link that we create for the ad and clicking through and making sure that the experience is what we'd like it to That's, be. I mean, if, if you're one of the picks and shovels people out there looking for a service that game developers need, I would love to have a room fill, or not a room, a virtual room filled with people who speak all sorts of different languages natively, as well as my native language. And can I can send them campaigns and they can QA them and make sure everything pops right. Like that is that's a service I would gladly pay for because I think um, I think you could find ROI in that pretty. You could find and measure the ROI in that pretty quickly um, in just helping make sure that you're not throwing your money out the window when you're uh, doing UA outside your uh, territory. You're able to kind of discern where, when there are drop-offs in your marketing funnel as well, but usually it's a, you infer that through the data. So if someone is clicking on your ad a lot because it's in the language that they prefer and then not actually converting into an install, you can hypothesize that it's because the experience, there's something that's happening there, but unless you're looking out for those specific signals, it's hard to tell what the issue is. Right. And if you're not as advanced as Nancy and her team, you know, that all loops back to, oh, we tried that country. It doesn't work for us. Right. And that's kind of like the easy excuse I hear day in and day out. Um, so really being able to troubleshoot each, each step is important to kind of figure out what needs to be changed to be successful in the market. So Nancy, I'd love to talk about localization a bit because the East Side games are much more text heavy um, than the games, the live ops games I've worked on. You know, Tetris was a very global game. Uh, we knew it's a global brand. We kept the amount of words in, in it to a minimum and it doesn't have a lot of backstory. And and even, you know, Legendary, there's, there's a good amount of words. It's a CCRPG. There's some dense writing, but I think, you know, just from playing the amount of writing in, in the games I've worked on compared to um, the East Side games portfolio, you know, there's a lot more words. So how do you, how do you learn, how do you approach uh, localization and culturalization at East Side? And, uh, you know, what have you learned through, uh, through your various experiences? Yeah, so for us, localization is definitely a process. So we've definitely come a long way since we first started as an English primary developer with our heavy, heavy narrative titles. And we still have a lot of work to do in terms of fully unlocking these international markets. But when we think about and approach localization, we do it in a quite steady way where we're incrementally testing at each phase and level of localization and measure, measuring the uplift like we talked about. So setting up these tests to start with localizing the ads to begin with, and then also the app store and then the game until we get to the point where it's a holistically localized experience. And then on our team, we focus on the user acquisition and the ASO portion of it. So we are localizing all of our ads and making sure that the copy is translating properly into 
those various geos and then measuring once we localize the ads versus the control group of English only ads in the same geo, what is the uplift there? How is, has it affected our KPIs, like our cost per install, click-through rate and conversion rate on those ads, making a case that localized ads do perform better than non-localized ads and people respond well to those in terms of converting better, lower costs and clicking more. And then once they get to the app store, does the localized version of the app store also increase the conversion rate from users who click on the ad to actually installing the game? And then after that, we want to also measure our post-install metrics. So once they get into the game, how are they performing within the game? Is the localized version of the game also improving their retention and their monetization, the, their engagement within the game, number of ads that they watch, et cetera? We're testing and measuring every step of the funnel along the way and measuring the uplift in order to build a case for localization. So starting from not having much localization to having a fully localized experience, how do the metrics look? And in the app store, we're also looking at the store ratings by geo and whether or not users are from a qualitative perspective, what they're ratings are looking like and whether there are any issues or complaints with the localized version of the game to make sure that the experience is actually good and making sure that our um, customer support is also responding to those reviews in the language of the review. In the future, we're looking to have better localized games and a more thought out strategy from the get-go, like Luna says, the ideal is that you're thinking about localization from the development, right when you start development, rather than creating an English game and then localizing it into different languages as much as possible ahead of the launch. Ludo, anything to add on, on the topic of localization and culturalization? Uh, I think all that makes sense. I'd just add um, a good exercise to do is to, to sort of uh, figure out what the potential opportunity size is of localizing your game, how much more revenue that could bring in, what is the additional addressable audience you're bringing in by localizing. That's a good way to go about it, to think which language should I be localizing for first and how urgent should this be? I think the, I also have advertisers that, you know, have their app localized in 16 plus languages, but they, you know, can't remember the last time the copy was updated. Um, they aren't, they can't respond to uh, comments or reviews in the local language. They don't have an FAQ desk that's available to, to respond to questions coming in by email, um, which all adds up to kind of a bad user experience. So localizing is super important. Culturalizing is super important. But the best thing you can do is to figure out what makes the most sense for you, um, build out an international growth plan according to that, and, and then stick to it, loop in all your, your product and edge teams as well so that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I've had um, experiences in the past where after updates where we added some things fans had been requesting, uh, where we knew we wanted to get the rating up of not only responding to the English language, one star, two star comments about those specific features, but actually hiring native speakers to go figure out which comments were asking about those features in, in other languages and responding in Japanese and Korean and, and whatever to really target the lower reviews. And we saw a great response to that, um, that when we responded 
um, to people outside of the English language, we were able to hit, you know, change one stars and two stars to four stars and five stars because we'd done the work and, and, and updated the game the way they were asking for it. And that ability to respond, let them know that, that we'd made a change that they were asking about and it, it paid off. Yeah, the reviews in different languages and from those geos are also a good indicator of where the your app might be popular and a potential good market to focus on. So if you're getting a lot of reviews from Brazil and Portuguese, for example, then you might want to consider Brazil as your next market. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting approach you talked about of basically a staged localization on the way, like proving that it's worth the investment to localize a game, localize your game. Cause I, I mean, again, like if I think about the localization cost on, on uh, trailer park boys, greasy money versus Tetris, I'm sure it was orders of magnitude <laughs> higher because of just the word count. And so you have to take, you know, for a low word count game, it can be really easy to say like, Hey, let's just run this through top 30, 40 countries. Like it's fine. There's very few words here. Um, but for something that's really narrative heavy, I, I like that kind of test uh, metered approach of, of learning at each step of the way um, that it's making a, a positive benefit. Um, switching gears a little bit, Ludo, uh, you know, Google talks about next billion user markets. In these markets, hundreds of thousands of new users come online for the first time every day, which just adds up to millions of people each week. Um, can you talk a little bit about these markets and their unique characteristics? Yeah, sure. Google actually has a whole website dedicated to the next billion users. It's, it's uh, very interesting if, if you Google it and, and have a read. Um, and and it's kind of, the numbers are kind of baffling, right? To your point, I think it's like 150,000 a day in India, um, 10 plus thousand a day in Mexico. Uh, users coming online for the first day, for the first time, sorry. And obviously, more often than not, this is happening uh, through a mobile phone. Um, so the typical markets, obviously India, Brazil, um, APAC markets, those are typically the ones that fall into that category. Um, from a mobile app perspective, uh, obviously the characteristics of those countries are high volume, right? A lot of activity happening, um, low CPI, uh, low acquisition in terms of running campaigns in those markets, but also lower revenue. Um, so obviously the average revenue per user is lower and those markets typically also have a a lower English proficiency level. Um, so while there's a ton of volume and the costs and barriers to entry to get in are pretty low, um, the, the the revenue coming out of those markets is also typically uh, pretty low. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing I know from, from doing global games I've, is um, focusing on low-end devices, focusing on Android, make, you know, really worrying about your, how much data you're consuming and how much battery you're consuming. Um, when you, if you're making a game where you want to reach as many people globally as possible, I've actually, you know, I've thought about, but never pulled the trigger on, um, starting a game, picking a low end Android device. That's like 80 bucks at Walmart and saying, we're developing for this and let's make sure it doesn't kill the battery. It doesn't use a lot of data, buy one of these for everyone on the team and force them to play their builds on it because, at least um, in in the world that I've been working in, which is VC funded, mostly Bay Area or California based developers, you know, it's a lot of everybody on the team has a really high end device, uh, lives somewhere where they have an unlimited data connection. They don't have to worry about 
these things that but they will complain when the battery burns a hole in their pocket but uh, uh otherwise it's it's easy not to th- think about the considerations of players in Brazil and Mexico and the Philippines and Indonesia um, who are having a much different experience than we are in in the west yeah I mean but if you think about those sizes that's what that's kind of what keeps bringing those countries back into the conversation with the advertisers I speak to, right? If we're mapping out countries on a bubble chart or, or whatever, um, you always have kind of one outlier that's in the corner showing extreme opportunity. Um, the question is, do we address that or not? So I think it, it really depends on, uh, to your point, you know, the, the type of game you have and the type of audience you're trying to address. Um, but the reality, you know, Brazil and Mexico together is, is a larger, larger um, addressable audience than the U.S. And a lot of these markets, too, English proficiency is increasing. Um, the, the average income uh, is increasing. Um, so the, the opportunity is there. And it's more so, you know, do we work on this now? And we're ready in a couple of years' time when, you know, inevitably uh, more people will be online, income will be going up, people will be spending more money on games. Um, or do we kind of wait it out and, and jump on the bandwagon when it's a little too late and we've lost that first mover advantage? And, and again, to, to bring up Garena, I mean, it's a case study in how well you can do. You can do as well as Fortnite by focusing on these different markets and the needs of the players and culturalization of players in those markets. Like uh, being a successful game developer is not only about making games for people who look like you, speak your language, and live in the same country you do. You can have massive uh, gangbuster success um, by, by focusing on, on these global markets. Yeah, and in a non-game context, you know, Facebook, Google, all these large tech companies, they're building out, you know, replicas of their existing apps to cater to these markets. So that should be, you know, photos, uh, docs, whatever, whatever you have it. I think Meta has their own app as well. Um, apps that kind of have lower storage, consume less battery, need less data for them to run properly. Um, that should be a very strong signal to say, you know, these big tech companies value the, the, these markets, they recognize the opportunity, uh, and, and so should you. Um, let's cap off this episode with some practical advice. Let's say I have a moderately successful game with a backlog filled of various product improvements. Uh, I, I believe I can grow my game further and I'm looking at, well, do I add guilds? Do I add this new daily quest system? Do I localize in Korea or do I localize for Indonesia? Um, et cetera. Like the, these are, everything takes work. Everything takes resources. How should I think about market expansion and prioritizing the ROI of that over other product improvements? Um, let's start with you, Nancy. What, what practical advice do you have in this scenario? It sounds like a very familiar <laughs> scenario. Right. Just, it's purely, purely hypothetical. <laughs> I have two line. I, I'm just looking at one and it says uh, event harness and the other one says Korea. And you're just going, which, which do I do? They take an equal, they cost an equal amount of, of money and time. Um, that's, I've never been there. Um <laughs> I guess the first thing I would look at is how do we define moderate success and what does your product look like at this stage? So really understanding your game's metrics from both the in-game perspective of how you're retaining, monetizing your players, and then how is the user acquisition performance and the marketability so far. 
So when you say like going into Korea, what's the actual potential there of new users that you can grow into? And um, then comparing the two options of is my product in a place where I can realistically expand into these new markets or do I need to do more in order to improve the game performance before I do that? So in order to look at that, really understand your benchmarks and your KPIs for uh, those in-game metrics that actually make your game monetize and allows your growth team or your user acquisition team to market that title in those geos. So if you're not hitting those numbers, then you might want to prioritize product improvements first and bump those up before you want to expand your game everywhere with a subpar experience. And once your product is solid and you feel like your, your retention is amazing, the users are making purchases at the price point that is set for those geos, that makes sense. They're also watching ads and you're monetizing through ad monetization then you can start some UA spend and test in some of the markets that you're thinking about. So once you've tested some UA spend and you're seeing strong ROAS in these markets in addition to your core markets, then you want to start that incrementally testing each geo like we talked about and knowing what your KPIs are and what you need to hit in order for a global expansion. When you're testing user acquisition, you want to understand your UA costs, what the LTVs in these different geos look like, and what ROAS goals we're looking for before you invest further and scale UA up even more. And then uh, as you're doing this, also look at your game metrics and make sure that they're continuing to hit the KPIs that are required to expand. Got it. And Ludo, what about you? Any closing thoughts on this, um, on, uh, this prioritization question? Yeah, I think I'd always advise advertisers to to evaluate where your game is is ready to be successful as is in international markets. I think a lot of times um, people don't realize that that their game actually you know there's a lot of, there's a large addressable English audience outside of the US, but also in, in markets where uh, English isn't the the primary language. Um, so do kind of a analysis or uh, some research to see you know which markets are actually accessible with our game as is, and can we test those and see if they scale there. Um, the next step would then be to, to kind of define maybe the top unreachable markets. You mentioned Korea that usually comes up as one as being really attractive, but heavy in localization. So define the top unreachable markets and what the gap is uh, to be successful in those markets uh, to localize and reach the audience there. And then from there, really, you can uh, start to, to prioritize product expansion and your international strategy accordingly. Um, and I think that the last thing I'll say is it's, I mentioned it before, it's important to really tie in that international piece to everything that you do, not just kind of have it as a, as a second or third step in the future. That will allow you to not have to make decisions like you referenced as career versus this, because career would already have been built in. I think that's, that's the way to go. Awesome. Well, Ludo, Nancy, thank you so much uh, for the time. I learned a lot and I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, 
do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.